Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. How's it going? Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I am very pleased to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. And if you've uh, listened to the previous episodes, you know we are wrapping up a journey to explore agriculture education. This has been over the past maybe four or five five episodes uh, that we've been doing this. It started with Hope Fleck um, several episodes ago. And we've looked at things all the way from a student perspective to a teacher perspective to a parent perspective urban, rural. And then just last week, I heard from Marcus Holland of Cultivating Change to discuss how they are uh, reaching out uh, and embracing diversity and inclusion in agriculture as well to bring new people into the industry that way. I thought all of these sort of tied together. They're, they're a bit different, as as I've mentioned, from the normal uh, ag entrepreneurship, ag tech, sustainability, food security that we that we typically address in this show. But I think it's been a really worthwhile journey to sort of contextualize all this. And it, it definitely has caused me, who has been part of the agriculture education system uh, since a very early age, to better understand why agriculture education is so important. In fact, I don't think anybody articulated it to the point where it all clicked for me as well as uh, our guest today, Dr. Daniel Foster. And what he said really made sense to me about how ag literacy, ag education is a STEM delivery mechanism, meaning that if we want to teach our students science, technology, engineering, mathematics, we need to do so in a way they'll understand, in a way that is practical for them. Nothing is more practical than food that everybody eats every single day. All students have some sort of context there to begin with. So you start with, hey, we ate lunch today. Let's reverse engineer that. Where did it come from and how did it arrive on our plates? And there are so many important concepts related to STEM education that happen in that process. So when Dr. Foster said that in this interview here today, kind of made it all make sense to me. So there's no better person to put some punctuation on the end of our ag education series than Dr. Foster. What you're going to hear is that I was enjoying this interview so much much, I decided mid-interview to make a two-part series out of it. So this is part one of my interview with Dr. Foster, and part two will be published next week. So enjoy this interview with Dr. Foster. We are starting right in on it with him describing his hero and the person who got him into agriculture education, his mother. My mother, who is my hero, my mother was the second female ag teacher in the state of Texas and uh, first in a single small rural school and <clears throat> became a teacher educator at the University of Arizona for agriculture. And so, quite frankly, she's my, I suppose, professional and personal hero, and I followed in her footsteps. And so she did, though, help me have, I guess, help me have the most growing experience of my life when as a sophomore in high school who had just been elected district FFA president and was starting on the offensive football uh, line. Uh, She made the decision our family was going to be the first to move out of the state of Texas to Arizona. And so that was a fun transition at the age of 16, 15. Wow. Did you, did you know it was coming or was it just all of a sudden you you got the news? It was, 
I was they may have put you know how it is you're an adolescent i mean i probably was pushing out of my mind thinking oh it won't happen it won't happen where we were, i went to a very small high school of uh, you know 200 kids in the high school cooper texas two ag teachers a lot of fun you know typical high school texas football experience where everybody goes and it's a big thing and they do all school pep rallies before every game that kind of stuff and uh so when we moved between my sophomore and junior years it was to Tucson, Arizona, where mom worked at the University of Arizona. And um, that high school, my class had 376 in it. The high school had 2,000. So oh, wow. that was the culture shock. Um, I remember the football coach telling me that I would have to choose. You can either play football or do ag and FFA. And that was very much a, a departure from what I was used to because our ag teacher ran the chains on Friday night and the football coach came to most FFA meetings. But that's just a small town, I suppose. Hmm. So um, I told the football coach, I said, well, guys my size that go to college doing this kind of thing run like a 4-8. <laughs> and you weren't there so yet? I better stick to the FFA. So <laughs> FFA was the one thing that uh, was the thread. And then I had the opportunity to serve as the state president of the Arizona FFA and do that thing. And had to make the hard choice of staying at the University of Arizona, which I enjoyed, or going and judging. Now, the, the, the decision was, are you going to be a state officer or are you going to go judge livestock for Jerry Hawkins at Clarendon Community College? And uh, I, I did the FFA thing instead of livestock judging. So ended up at the University of Arizona and taught in a little town called Wilcox, Arizona, which I believe uh, we may have associates uh, from that town. I don't we know. Do. If, I believe familiar. You work with Brian Hogue and yeah, both, both Brian Hogue and Jeanette Barnard have been on the podcast before. Actually, <laughs> that's fun. Well, they they were my students. So. Uh, Jeanette more than Brian. I worked with Brian for about a month before he got elected and then uh, worked with Jeanette uh, extensively. So that was fun. Now, did you know early on because of your mother that you wanted to follow in her footsteps or did that decision come about at the time you had to choose between livestock judging and FFA state office? Know that I wanted to be an ag teacher? Yes, sir. You know, that's a great question, Tim. And I think that's one of the reasons – that I, when I'm talking to students about considering ag ed, sometimes it's difficult for them because they fear that if I choose to major this, because I kind of think I might like it, that they're committing to being a teacher or being in a small town or being in a situation at that point for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I often have to tell them, I said, look, I didn't know that this is what I wanted to do because it was fun until February of my senior year during student teaching. And that's when I knew that, hey, I, I want to keep doing this. At that point, I had an offer to take a teaching job there at Wilcox or to go be a lobbyist for the Arizona Cattlemen's Association. Uh, and I said, you know, I don't want to live in Phoenix. <laughs> and it's a lot more fun uh, helping a kid discover what they have inside through agriculture than it is trying to twist the arm of an elected official uh, to recognize the importance of our industry. So, um, yeah, that's when I decide. So I use, and I tell students all the time, I said, look, you don't have to know now. The great thing about our degree is that we're going to put you 15 weeks in the high school, and you're going to figure out pretty quick whether you like kids and you want to do this. Hmm. And if at the end of it you don't, you have a very versatile degree that is in demand for multiple reasons, and you can go get a great job. So that's kind of how I try to couch it when I talk to students. 
No, that's a fantastic point. In fact, I can remember thinking myself, well, I think it would be fun, but I don't know that I can be in a classroom for, for the rest of my life. And, and you make a great point that that's a false choice. That's, that's not that really isn't, you know, something you're committing to. But what what other uh, one thing I do want to talk about more just here today in general is is the fact that there is a shortage of ag teachers. There, there's uh, more openings than it seems like get filled every year. Uh, and what contributes to that? One of the reasons might be exactly what you just stated, which is people think they have to go do it forever uh, when when really it can be something that they do for a while. And, and if they don't like it, they certainly have options to go do other things. But what other reasons uh, contribute to that teacher shortage? Well, let's start with the positives, uh, because I think there are a lot of positives as we look at this. Every day I have schools waking up and realizing that when we talk about a premier delivery system for applied STEM instruction, science, technology, engineering, and math, man, agriculture education is where it's at. And if there's not one grand challenge facing the world today that we can't tie back to food, fiber, and natural resources in one way or another. So it presents a context to help students in our most demand areas to address our biggest challenges. And ag education provides that opportunity. Now, that's cool. But where they really start getting excited is when we start saying, well, yeah, as part of the program, we're going to cultivate entrepreneurship. We're going to establish and develop financial literacy through this notion of supervised agriculture experience programs. And, oh, by the way, we also have a leadership laboratory that's going to harness youth voice and agency and cultivate um, self-well-being of what we can accomplish through the FSA. And when they see that, they're like, holy smokes. We want an ag program. And, Tim, as I'm sure you're aware of, I, I, I fight two battles here. One, people say it's just for rule. I say, well, it's not just for rule, but by golly, rule may need it more than anybody. I mean, I just read an article a month ago, I think, in the Wall Street Journal about rural America is the new inner cities, and that if we look at different metrics of socioeconomic success um, and social well-being, uh, different key measures that from the 90s down, it's been uh, – getting worse in rural And so we have to make do with more, and we need these ag programs that can provide this high science instruction in, a, in an authentic way while developing that youth voice and teaching financial literacy, contributing to the economic engines of our rural communities. So ag education provides that hub to bring those people together and those opportunities in a community beyond the school building walls, but by student, by student at a time. And like I said, I'm sure you're aware, we can talk about the rural, that heritage, but at the same time, well, I think we have the last numbers I saw that we have ag education programs in 15 of the 18 largest cities in America. And quite frankly, we have a whole generation of students, of young people who care about their food. And so we will either engage them with sound, scientifically valid instruction so they can understand about that, or we will abdicate that responsibility in somebody else. They will get that information from somewhere. And whether I think there's you know, one of our questions that we talk about is what does ag literacy success look like in the U.S. I think it talks more about us having comprehensive K through 12 induction and experiential education experiences with food, fiber, and natural resources. If we can have schools and elementary schools hire an art or music coordinator that works across multiple grades, why not an ag education coordinator? 
uh, an ag literacy coordinator that connects to efforts and initiatives being done by our extension offices, by our farm bureaus, by our local community groups to help connect with those K through fifth graders. Um, I'm afraid that I'm getting excited and moving on and not. I love it. No, 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 no. This, this, <laughs> I'm just letting you roll because this is great. Uh, in fact, it, it's uh, it's really touching on a lot of the points that I wanted to really hone in on. So, no, I, I appreciate it. The, the ag literacy piece, the way you frame that up about it being a STEM delivery system that everyone can relate to who eats, who wears clothing, who buys products made from agriculture, that just makes so much sense to me. And that actually, I think that is like the answer I've been searching for. We've been doing this series on ag education, and I think that's the answer I've just kind of been grasping for is like, what is it about ag? Yeah, we love ag. We're from ag. We we're passionate about it. But why does that why should that be relevant to everybody? And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, nobody questions how important it is for kids to learn uh, science, technology. Uh, what is it? Ed, engineering and math. Engineering. Is right? yeah. Yep. yeah. And so nobody can question that. And, and ag as the delivery system for that is really just a cool way to put that. Um, that but, that's the authentic context. And I'm telling you, yeah. When we start looking at that and we can move past viewing it as farm petting schools and viewing it as teaching healthy well-being and lifestyles through agriculture, uh, last week, was it last week? Goodness, no, it's like basically it's been three weeks now. I've been in Guatemala for two weeks. Anyway, um, I was on a domestic study away. One thing I do every year is I load up my teacher candidates, and this is we can talk about that at another time about why I do that. One primary reason is mobility, but another uh, teacher mobility. How do I get them to realize that there's good people everywhere to fit that need? Because that's one reason we have a shortage is that oftentimes we prepare students and they are very landlocked or uh, based to one community. And a philosophy I have as an agriculture teacher educator is that we're developing ag teachers to teach where students are in need, no matter where that is. And we are not developing Pennsylvania-specific ag teachers. We're developing philosophically sound community change agents that can make a difference anywhere in the world. And uh, to do that, I have to convince these candidates that those opportunities, they'll be welcomed with open arms. So we do a domestic study away, and we went to Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin, and I visited uh, the school for agricultural and in agricultural and environmental studies, Sages. Sages is a public charter school, K through six, teaching agriculture and teaching their entire course. So there's like 20 kids, there's about 120 kids. Their entire school is through that lens with authentic experiences. I had first graders talking about, and this is where I'm going to show my ignorance. Uh, Chalets is the part of the egg. I don't know if you remember, if you're not in poultry science. They were talking to me about the chalets and the egg, and I'm like, goodness gracious, first graders. Uh, and what makes me laugh is if I was the ag teacher in the high school in that community, you're going to have to up your game with your freshman uh, curriculum because teaching breeds is not going to get it done in the freshman year of high school uh, for these kids. But it was really exciting, and I said, you know, why can't more people see this? We talk about, you know, concerns and challenges of childhood obesity and children not having um, place-based education or not being in touch with nature or not knowing the world around them. I'm like, yeah, here we go. Agriculture, if you know what's in food, how food's produced, where food comes from, you can make better lifestyle choices. If you see that gardening is more than just a, a seed in a styrofoam cup and I can do that as a third grader, fourth grader, fifth grader, little kids can make a big difference. I just got really excited about that notion. And then reality storms down on me because I says, and what's the critical element of all of these great ideas is a passionate educator. 
And so what are we going to do as a nation? What are we going to do as an agricultural industry to show respect, to invest in this worthwhile career? Um, and that's a question I don't know if I have the answer to, but it's a question I know that one that we have to grasp with. And I, I know you're part of a group that is is trying to take on that challenge, the, the Teach Ag campaign. Can can you tell everybody listening about that and, and what, what exactly that is? Yeah, very fortunate. There are some groups and companies out there. And unfortunately, I don't have all the information from the side of them all. It kind of scares me when you, you hate forgetting someone who's been so helpful. But the National Teach Ag Campaign, and Ellen Thompson is the executive director of that and does an outstanding job. And a major uh, sponsor, supporter, partner is the better word, is CHS out of Minnesota. Because, um, And I've run into this a lot in my job. Sometimes it's difficult when I talk to agricultural industry to get them to invest into what I call the long game and not the short fix. Because when I ask them sometimes to invest in agriculture education, it's not going to immediately next year or in four years change the availability of supply of workers for their company or change a policy or something immediately that's impacting their bottom line, but it will in two decades Mm -hmm. or in in generations because – and it will have a longer sustaining effect. But that's really a more – a difficult sell. And so – I think as we went through and saw this growing challenge of a lack of educators and knowing that it's not the prettiest school building in the world with the best equipment and the best curriculum doesn't make a tinker's darn without a passionate educator to make the machine hum. The engine of school-based ag education is the educator who can help make the connections, show that sincere interest in every single student that they have something valuable to offer to this world and if they can do it and plug in through ag education to make that happen and we didn't have enough of them and we still don't and so it was a concerted effort by the national association of ag educators to kind of hey let's start looking how we can address this issue Uh, let's get one person that wakes up every day thinking about it make them full-time and they pulled ellen out of the minnesota high school ag classroom and she's been doing wonderful with that Great. I, I think I read recently that BASF had been maybe your most recent supporter of yeah. the campaign Thank and they're a supporter of this podcast as well. So, um, Excellent. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I no, serve I, on the advisory board for that group, so uh, I am not always with the day-to-day interactions. I just appreciate the work and the effort that we're saying, you know what, this is an issue that matters and we're going to put time and energy toward it. As you look to trying to contribute to solving the the teacher the ag teacher shortage problem, uh, what types of core pain points do you see that's causing sort of attrition in, in the ranks of of ag teachers? Well, you're right. We have to look at it from two ways. Uh, you look at it from the recruitment and retention, right? So from the recruit, I mean, I'll start off with recruitment. From the recruitment end, um, I need to have. I don't know the long-term answer in this because, I mean, I get very focused on ag education, but quite frankly, if we take a little bit of a couple steps back, we notice that any profession in education right now is suffering a numbers dip. And there's a lot of different reasons that we don't want to get into on, on this particular podcast from educational policy and how do we value and view professionals. I just can share with you that it blows my mind. I just... Um, my favorite thing to do is to take somebody from a different country or a different culture to a school that has high school ag education for the first time. So anytime I do a student teacher visit, it's a, I, you know, I grab someone and say, hey, hop in the truck with me. Let's go watch something awesome. Yeah. And so about a month ago, I was able to take a Fulbright scholar from Taiwan, teacher educator, social studies. And uh, 
He had never seen ag education. And he said, oh, this sounds neat. And as we were driving, I said, well, you know, one of our biggest concerns is, uh, you know, shortage. Do you have shortage issues in Taiwan? He just looked at me like I had two heads. Why would we have teacher shortage issues? Hmm. Teachers are respected, beloved, and everybody wants to be a teacher. It's, it's a high-demand profession that requires special, unique individuals. And I don't know where and when in America we have decided that that's no longer the case or that we are not going to fund and appreciate um, because we can talk about teacher appreciation and pats on the back, but you and I both know at some point it comes down to what is the salary that a talented young person can get to stay in this profession? And how are we investing in realizing that this is, it takes a special human being and it takes uh, compensating them appropriately for what they invest. So that's the recruitment in. How do we change that societal perception? <laughs> we could talk more. I kind of got off on a tangent there. The retention end comes down to a, a situation where I think that, and one of the things we have to walk to, why do young teachers struggle? I think that we have a profession and a discipline that has these very high expectations. Um, there's, I don't think there's another educational area that has such a close relationship with local agribusiness that views that ag teacher as, quite frankly, an advocate and a champion for an industry and expects them to be visible and present and engaged. Mm-hmm. And so we have this expectation. We have an expectation that we're going to differentiate instruction as a best practice to ag education students by providing one-on-one supervision of high-quality work-based learning experiences, which they keep records on called their SAE. And we're also going to help them grow as young people by facilitating this intracurricular organization. Oh, in addition to teaching, and by the way, unlike your English teacher who may teach freshman English four times a day and sophomore English twice, you're going to teach seven different classes a day. So I need you to be an expert, you know, be knowledgeable about natural resources, soil science, talk about complicated societal issues like climate change, teach parliamentary procedure. Oh, by the way, you can do welding, electricity, and small gas engines. And don't forget the animal science, nutrition, and the plant science. You can see how it's easy for a new teacher to be overwhelmed. And I think that they're scared if I ask for help, if I ask for help, it shows weakness or incompetence. And so we talk all the time to our teachers about their their professional expertise is facilitating quality educational experiences and to be able to say, I don't have to do it all. I'm going to do this well, and I'm going to ask for help. And even if I knew livestock judging better than everybody else, and I was on the collegiate livestock team, maybe if there's somebody in my community that can do it, maybe not as good because pride and ego gets in the way, but could do it well, maybe I ask them to volunteer instead of spending those hours there and put my time somewhere where no one else can do as I coordinate an articulated curriculum that advances students and pushes forth a program, a program manager, more so than just a day-to-day um, deliverer of lessons. So uh, we have to teach our students, if we're going to retain them, how we can help and how they can facilitate and utilize support programs. Josh Rusk at National SFA, alumni, is doing some wonderful things. I had him in as a guest speaker in my class in the fall, and I, I really appreciate his words of, like, find different ways for people to plug in. And he, I love it when I get stretched and challenged on the creativity side and say, he's like, 
What about virtual volunteers? Do you have a way for someone who can't come in during the day to do work and help advance your program all through computers? You know, I'm like, well, give me an example. Would you have someone running your invoices of your fruit sale, of your fundraiser, or someone who maintains and assists maybe with your website, or someone who just helps you maintain a directory of people that you can call with different expertise areas? He gave three or four examples of virtual volunteers, and I think, man alive, I don't think many of our teachers ever even think about developing a cafeteria list menu of wide-ranging ways to plug in beyond asking the traditional, will you give me money? to sponsor an award, or where you coach a team where you have to show up every day. And there's so many more people that can't do either one of those but want to help. So how do you find a way to harness that? That's a great idea. I, w- I would I would want to be involved in that virtually. You know, it's, it's hard to uh, leave and travel and, and do all that stuff. But virtually, that's a, that's a fantastic idea. Well, uh, one of your – go ahead. Well, not to take us off. I know we're talking, but here's, I, I, I believe in sharing dreams because if you share them enough, Somebody will talk to somebody else, and eventually it will actually happen. So about five years, I've been kicking this idea around, and I've been told that others are having conversations, which is, makes me excited. But have you ever engaged on um, Kiva, um, the microfinancing side? Uh, not on Kiva, but, I, but on, similar, on similar platforms. Yeah. So the notion that we'll use an NGO to validate um, smallholder stake farmer producers' projects and I, as an individual, anybody in the world can go on there and loan $50 and get to have the fun of reading the projects and choose where I want it to go, $25 there, $10 there, as much as you want. They pay it back, and when they pay it back, I can give it again, which the giving is the fun part, uh, or I can take it out. Now, observations are that very few people ever take it out. So my wife and I have a goal of funding a female agricultural production operation on every continent except for Antarctica. I think we gave up on that uh, mm-hmm. in the world. And so we, it's fun for us, like our gifts to each other for, you know, Christmas or whatever. Here's 100 bucks for Kiva or whatever. And then you get to go and give it, and it gets paid back out. And I said, man alive, you and I both probably know so many people that if they could go to a, a well-run clearinghouse where instead of the NGOs, the ag teacher that had to vet the, the loan request from a young person looking to be in agriculture, where it could be microfinance where each of us could give back and pick different projects. I mean, every year I showed lambs as a kid in high school. I'd probably find four or five different kids wanting to get in the sheep industry and loan, and then they pay it back. And then think about the financial literacy we could teach on both ends of a student applying for a loan and then paying a loan back. I just I think that's a neat idea. How can we take microfinancing, micro loans to student supervised ag experience projects? Boy, can you tell Dr. Foster is a fantastic teacher or what? I mean, his energy is contagious. It's infectious. And his passion for this industry and his passion for ag education is certainly evident. So much so that I'm very pleased we're going to be able to make two episodes out of this interview. So make sure you stay tuned for next week uh, for part two of my interview with Dr. Foster, where we get more into his international efforts and some uh, some more information just on agriculture education in general. Hey, a really easy way to listen to that episode is just to go subscribe to the Future of Agriculture podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast player you use. Uh, make sure you're subscribed so that you can automatically get these episodes downloaded onto your phone um, and you can listen at your convenience. 
Speaking of which, on iTunes, uh, thank you so much again to those of you who have decided to go and rate and review uh, this program. It certainly has been humbling to me to to hear that many of you are enjoying things. If you haven't taken 30 seconds uh, just to leave a quick review on iTunes, we really appreciate it because this helps us get the word out to others. Uh, as an example, we had a recent review from the Pocket Potager, which I had to look up what a Potager was. I encourage you to do that too. It's it's a gardening term. It says, an invaluable resource, incredibly cogent material. Very cool. This podcast covers the range and breadth of the diverse agriculture community in a most thorough and engaging manner. I do not come from an ag background, and I have found the guests and information to be clearly articulated and easily understood. Great sound editing and smooth post-production value add to the overall quality. Keep up the great work. Hey, Pocket Potiger, that is really, really nice of you. Thank you so much for leaving that review. And I would encourage any of you listening, if you have just a few seconds, uh, go to iTunes and leave us that rating and review so others can learn about the amazing work happening in the agriculture industry. It is certainly my pleasure to uh, do this every week. And some of you may have caught, in fact, one person even said something, a little quote that I said at the end of the last show, which uh, may have some staying power with me because I like it so much. And I guess your trivia for the week is you tell me where this quote comes from. It says, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit aggrad.com. That's A-G. GRAD.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.